I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Darian Leader. He's here to talk about his new book, Jouissance, Sexuality, Suffering, and Satisfaction. Dr. Leader is a psychoanalyst working in London and a member of CIFAR, the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research. You can learn more on his website, darianleader.com. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to everyone that supports us at Patreon. Your support is so appreciated. This episode of Rendering Unconscious is available to view at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube. Thank you for being here, Darian, and thank you for writing this book. I love the way, I love the entire book, but I love the way that it wrapped up where you say, it would be nice if psychoanalysts were to decide here whether they will devote their lives to proving to others and to themselves that everything Lacan said after 1963 is correct or to continue the project that one assumes he had opened up for them. Yeah, that's right. It seems more and more that people are concerned just to show that everything after 1963 is coherent, is non-contradictory, is correct, rather than actually doing some psychoanalytic research into the areas that Lacan had opened up for us. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to the way in which the term jouissance has come to be used in our circles. Originally, it is introduced at crucial moments in Lacan's work when he's grappling with a conceptual and clinical problem. But nowadays, we just use it very casually to classify a number of entirely disparate phenomena and processes. So it's almost become like a psychiatric label, which is used to refer to surface phenomena. So when we use the term jouissance, we tend not to ask the question, well, what exactly does it mean? Why is it there? What is it supposed to be accounting for? And crucially, in what way does it illuminate the fusion or coalescence of contradictory qualities, which is supposed to be a hallmark of Schwiesel's. Yeah, and I love the reference to Nestor's book. I just want to mention that as well, because Nestor recently passed away, of course, and yeah, so I just wanted to make fine. sure to, to mention yeah, that yeah. as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's sad news. In, in Nestor's book and in the paper that he published in English some years ago, he's very alert to that. And he was one of the first writers to point out the problematic use of the term jouissance and how so often we reduce Lacan to a kind of mid-Lacan focused on desire and a late Lacan focused on jouissance. And in Nestor's work, we find a challenging of that rather simplistic binary desire jouissance and he raises a number of questions especially in the book about research I think really he, he ends the book with the question of the superego which is something obviously I focus on as well in my book 
And it seems as if the more one considers what the term jouissance is supposed to be accounting for, the more one led towards these questions of superegoic formation and superegoic functioning. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think in Nestor's work, he's led to a distinction between a number of different forms of superego. And in my book on jouissance, I'm more interested in the perhaps more classical idea that was argued by Melanie Klein and Glover, that perhaps it was put forward rather tentatively by both authors, that just as we see classically the superego as the heir of the Oedipus complex, you could also see different superegoic inscriptions at the end of each of the prior libidinal phases. Yeah, so a very nice idea that would account for a lot of clinical phenomena. It just gets a bit more complicated when you question the idea of a neat division of libidinal phases, which again, I think you know, the clinic really forces us to do. But there's some very important questions of the establishment of imperative structures in the psyche in the early years of life. How do we make sense of those? How do we theorize them? So that's the kind of question that I'm hoping to open up in the book. And just to make one other point about that, that question of the superego, as Lacanians, we tend to put a big emphasis on desire and we don't tend to have so much of an interest in guilt. In Freud's civilization and its discontents, he says that really guilt is the fundamental problem that psychoanalysis has to deal with. And he introduces a model of the kind of economics of pain and suffering and punishment that had been elaborated at different moments in his work, but it's very, very clearly set out in the civilization book. And yet it's something that's perhaps sadly neglected in Lacanian work today, when we talk about guilt, we usually evoke Lacan's discussions of guilt, which are absolutely topical, but we fail to see the context of those discussions. Lacan is arguing for models of guilt that weren't customary at the time, in the 50s and 60s. So we kind of lose out on that old Freudian model by only putting the focus on the other models of guilt that Lacan argues for, for example, in the transference seminar or in the ethics seminar. No, and I really love the way that you do your analyses in this book because um, it's clear that, of course, you love Lacan Lacan's work, um, but it's like, uh, like you said, like opening up questions again where things seem to have, people seem to have a tendency to kind of want to lock things in place and argue theory and like put things in place instead of doing like the psychoanalytic work with the theory, which is like opening up more questions, opening up more possibilities. And you also go back and bring back, bring in these earlier theorists. Um, some I always end up when I read your books having to go and like learn who new people are um, and bringing in prior work to kind of make the theory more, uh, just having more, a larger bouquet of ideas in there rather than just like leaning on these like phrases and jargon that people keep throwing around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, analytic groups tend to be bound together by shared beliefs and the need to believe in a theory or in a particular person. 
that's perhaps an aspect of all analytic groups and all human groups much more generally. But we lose out a great deal if we don't construct dialogues with other traditions and other writers analytically. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage people to read British analysts, American analysts, other French analysts, analysts from different traditions, many of whom Lacan was very familiar with and entered into some kind of dialogue with, or maybe was inspired by, but also to make new dialogues by bringing in what for me is very, very important work in the American tradition and to see how that resonates with Lacanian work, how they can, the two traditions can clarify each other, can illuminate certain questions and can open up new ones. So really, you know, I'm very pleased if people read the Trisons book and then go off and read Ericsson or, you know, Karen Stephen and the other authors who get a lot of uh, space in the book. Yeah, exactly. Karen Stephen, I hadn't heard of before. And so now I've had to go and order her books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, she was an amazing writer and theoretician. She's um, kind of using a slightly Kleinian but more Abrahamian model, which sees ambivalence and contradiction as central to all object relations. And what she's really interested in is how the body itself becomes a site of inscriptions of the other, of parental care, parental imperatives, parental enjoyment, parental pain, and how that fuses with the nascent biological and interpersonal processes that are being constructed for the infant and the child. So that work in particular, Psychoanalysis and Medicine, is an incredibly rich work which reading it today is still full of surprises and can shed a lot of light on clinical and conceptual problems. Absolutely. And you also brought up Eric Fromm, who I've been reading a lot lately because he does seem so relevant today. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you read what Fromm was saying about capitalism in the late 1930s, early 1940s, it's exactly what a lot of Lacanian writers say today as if, you know, this is all absolutely new theory. But, you know, this is old stuff. But because from isn't part of our tradition, we tend not to read it. Yeah. So, again, uh, it, it seems likely that Lacan followed Fromm's work. Certainly he'd read the, the work from 1936 on, on authority and the family in the Adorno volume. And very probably he'd read the later work, Escape from Freedom, um, Fromm's work on being and having, Fromm's work on love. These are things that all have echoes and resonances in Lacan's work. But Fromm also focuses on a number of very pertinent problems in the politics of psychoanalysis that we can all, again, learn from today. Oh, would you say more about that? One of the things that Fromm was interested in is group formation. It's a central topic in Escape from Freedom. And later on in his book, which is a kind of collection of essays, The Crisis in Psychoanalysis, he's looking at ego psychology, and he was always a, a fierce critic of uh, Austro-American ego psychology. And he's looking at how the politics of the analytic movement and the efforts to avoid criticism falling on Freud led to both clinical and theoretical 
paths which might have been different if people had been more willing to think about Freud and read Freud critically. That was one of the reasons, again, why Fromm kind of fell off the reading lists in a lot of analytic trainings around the world, certainly in the International Psychoanalytic Association, because of that critical edge. But reading those essays today is, is again, you know, absolutely topical for, you know, for our own analytic tradition. Absolutely. And I was also interested to hear, to read that uh, Thomas Saad had one of the first um, references to Lacan in his yes. work in English. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised when I came across that. Lacan's referred to occasionally in the um, IPA, in the journal literature, every now and again. Um, he's referred to in a few book-length studies before that. But really, this is the first, um, one of the first, as far as I know, references in a kind of mainstream um, publication by an IPA analyst. And again, it's a book that most people today aren't aware of. They know about his work as a critic of psychiatry, as a critic to a certain extent of psychoanalysis. But that book, again, is something that you hardly ever see referenced. And yet it's a very careful study of the relation of pleasure to pain and of moments and processes in which they fuse together. Yeah, it was one that I had I didn't have, and I have several of his books. So there's another one that has been ordered, thanks to you. <laughs> yeah. um, and I also love the way that you take uh, theory and then bring it into current age. You always use like, you know, current films and movies and things that are going on now to make it like very relatable. And I love this part where you uh, talk about the primal father and the shift from like hoarding and enjoying all the women to to the data hoarding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, everyone today seems so sensitive to that, that these figures, the, the kind of oligarchs and, and tech billionaires, there's less fascination with their sex lives, but there's much more of a sensitivity to the idea that there are stealing something from us that are amassing data and enjoying data. So we have this interesting shift in terms of that figure of the primal father across, you know, maybe the last 30 years or so. Yeah, this is a really interesting shift. Um, and one of the other things that I love that you addressed, uh, which is my biggest problem with the Lacan, Lacanian theory and Lacanians, is... Um, is this focus on they're really stuck in the binary and on these kind of old tropes of like men and women and their positions. And I just feel like uh, if we stay stuck in that, we're really going to lose a lot of the next generation, you know? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And I mean, when you look at Lacan's work, you know, you have to see it as a historically situated work, just mm -hmm. like Freud's was. And, Lacan himself had no problem in situating Freud in a historical context, like many other um, critics of Freud, and seeing what the consequences of that historicization were on analytic theory and obviously by implication analytic practice. Yet we never seem to do the same with Lacan. We never seem to see him as a man of his time and situate, for example, what he says about men and women and about sexuality within the context of contemporary ideologies. And it, it does seem to be a great pity that Lacan 
didn't engage so much, it, it seems he didn't really read much of second wave feminism with their critiques of psychoanalysis, not just the obvious stuff about the castration complex, but the more careful critiques about the idea of the difference between women, about the difference between the individual and the sexual being, all stuff you find in the late 60s and early 70s, which could certainly have informed more a work like Seminar 20 Encore. So I think, you know, we have to historicize it. And although Lacan's theories and remarks on sexuality, on sexuation, on male and female sexuality are still rich and, you know, important in many ways, we also have to bite the bullet and accept that perhaps not everything is correct and we need to have open minds and learn from from what we hear from patients from people around us from people outside psychoanalysis to see how that can inflect and perhaps make us change our theories yeah exactly and you know um like here in sweden since i moved to sweden there there i have met three lacanian psychoanalysts so they do exist uh, uh, per Magnus Ewensen trained in Paris and then came back and has trained some other people. So that's wonderful. Um, but for the most part, like in Sto- they're, they're in Gothenburg, but in Stockholm, when I was living in Stockholm, there's not really any Lacanian analysts. And uh, mm. when I presented at the Swedish Psychoanalytic Association there, you know, no one had read Lacan. Um, and so, and so, yeah, it was very difficult to to talk to them, even though I really always try to present my papers in a way that you do too, where you don't use a lot of jargon so that people can read them, even if they're not familiar with the theories already, which is great. Um, but yeah, Lacan passed away in 1981. So it's not, it's not new theory. And I think for the time that he wrote, it was really progressive and, you know, saying that anybody can take up these two positions, of course. But then, yeah, if he was still alive and writing, I'm sure he'd still be evolving his theory to this day, you know? But yeah, I, I agree. But I, I'm not sure how progressive it really was, because if you look at what other people were writing in the 60s before Lacan, you'll find ideas that were equally perhaps even more progressive in for me what's really important in that period is the American sociology of sexuality which it's pre-Foucault and in in many ways more important than Foucault the idea of sexual scripts and the fusion of cultural intrapsychical and intersubjective processes there you read that stuff today, it, it, it's still, you know, absolutely acute and to the point and incredibly important um, and, and very progressive in terms of the idea of movement between different sexual positions and how discourse allows or disallows that. So for, for me, you know, there's much more subtle work that was done in the late 1960s than what we find in the Lacanian psychoanalysis of the 70s. Very good point. And like to point out as well, like uh, arguing like what a true woman is and this kind of thing can be really problematic. It's, ridic- it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and it's amazing that, that we still use that kind of language in our circles. Yeah. Um, Fernanda Magallanes, who's a psychoanalyst in Mexico, she wrote a great book uh, called The Body and the Oedipal Plot. And she addresses a lot of that, of uh, the kinds mm-hmm. using feminine Jewish songs and what a true woman is mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's being worked on and with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, and I just also have to mention 
the uh, the logo of Lacan's father's company. That was also such a nice kind of treat that you brought up uh, and how you said you joked that it would have like three rings and then you looked it up and it actually found that it did, in fact, to which a fourth yeah. was added. Yeah, that was quite surprising. <laughs> but also not. <laughs> but, but again, I mean, you know, the... I mean, that's that's quite funny, um, you know, and making that connection. But again, it's about historicizing. It's about not abstracting people from their historical, personal, biographical contexts. You know, in the same way that we have no problem in linking Freud's work with his biography, yeah, whether we're using that in terms of a confirmation or a critique or, or some kind of, you know, dialectical reading... And yet we never really do that with Lacan. Yet, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't. It's not about disproving the theory, but it's about inflecting it and just putting it in historical context. Yeah, and of course it makes sense that anytime people are developing their theory, they're developing it from their work and their perspective, and it's going to have their yeah. history and their times in it. You know, it just makes sense. Yeah, I think it was absolutely. Jung that said, like, you know, I don't want people to be Jungians. You should be whatever you are, you know. Yeah, I think the, the first person to say that, as far as I know, was Marx, who said mm. it's for you to be Marxists. Um, and then Freud said it himself. He said to his followers, it's up to you to be Freudians, but not me. And then, of course, Lacan says the same thing later on in the 70s. Exactly. Um, so what are you working on now? So now I'm writing a book about sexuality with a focus on sexual practice and the history of sexual practice. And one of the things that, that again, I've, I've found, you know, surprising and fascinating is the way that as psychoanalysts, we're supposed to be obsessed with sex, but actually we know hardly anything about it. And so when patients tell us things about their sexual lives, we might ask a few questions but we tend to be rather reserved and prudent, perhaps because we don't want to be seen to be too intrusive or too obsessed with sex in the way that the kind of old school popular image of analysts was about. But the people that are asking those questions, so people in the tradition of what was once called sexology, they've come up with a lot of remarkable research on things that as analysts, we, we just don't know anything about. So in the book, I'm trying to bring together, I, I read through the last, um, I think 60 or 70 years of the sexology journals. So I'm trying to bring together what we can learn from that tradition and the tradition of erotic humor, jokes about sex from the last few centuries that have been studied by historians to see what that can show us about changes and continuities in sexual practice and hopefully trying to bring some analytic theory to those points where analysis hasn't really, really, you know, had much of, you know, a possibility of research because we just don't have the data. Wonderful. I love this about, you know, the evolution of your work. And I love this about this field in general is that there's like so much more to always explore, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we always think as analysts that we know everything about people's internal lives. But there are always questions that we won't ask. You know, again, for no doubt historically, you know, contextual, you know, reasons. And 
when we tell people to free associate, obviously they free associate according to the architecture of their own resistances, yeah? And so even if, you know, we'll interrupt people and try and persuade them to talk about certain things, we do still tend to shy away from a lot of questions about sex. So, you know, we can try to ask some of those questions in analytic practice and learn something, but we can also, as I was saying earlier, learn from the people that do ask those questions in, in other research traditions. Yeah, exactly. That's the best uh, way to kind of broaden the field and our own thinking. And that's what that's what I try to do on the podcast, too, is make sure I invite people from all different theoretical orientations mm-hmm. and just anyone mm-hmm. working with kind of the body, mind, consciousness to kind of, yeah, broaden the broaden the field. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I really feel that psychoanalysis, you know, could be so useful in these times and in, in what's going on with social justice and politics and gender and everything. I feel like it can add such a more, more nuanced view of things. Yeah. Absolutely. But we have to be open to listen and learn from what people from the other traditions are saying. When, you know, for a number, again, of, of historical reasons, as analysts, we've always tended to think we know much more than other people. And hence, you know, we have a more condescending attitude to theoreticians, researchers from other traditions. Because we sort of assume, you know, they're not interested in the unconscious, hence their work is kind of automatically invalidated. Yeah, it's limited in some way. Yeah, it's a great pity. I mean, there are plenty of people that do work that doesn't take account of the unconscious, but still, you know, can be, you know, of the utmost interest. Absolutely. And aren't we supposed to not uphold this position of the subject supposed to know? (laughs) In theory. Exactly, Exactly, yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Darian Leader. For more, visit his website, darianleader.com, and check out the Center for Freudian Analysis and Research, cfar.org.uk. That's cfar.org. UK. And now, Lunacy, from the soundtrack of the film of the same name. Enjoy. Dearest Vanessa, the car, a craft.
if you should only get to know him. Just been in contact with, in wretched. The, my heart is. Also, please add, gazing upon it with a sense of dread. This is mad. Print. Locking, 
things we can't direct. Her very patient, devastated feet, drawing of the Renaissance and our senses. We are still sensory-driven more than anything else. Always have been. A, a new form of fire and fear. When the sun rises, the senses are alerted. We can see what's tangible. Have never, as I think, at all understood thee. When I worry, the message is lost in sweet note. Processes. Most of us structure our active lives based, and then she says that the speakers can choose. Have thee, will have to use force in my on visibility of the sun, and then retract when it's no longer visible. One could say this is new simplifications. Tissue that structures, binds, and supports. It is for Vanessa. Vanessa. 